Wise Turtle Speaks is a series of offerings merging philosophy, physics, math, biology, psychology, sociology, education, art, politics, and even love together. We will explore the patterns of our consciousness as it moves through space and time and use those patterns to better understand and solve our problems in all four dimensions of the universe. Namaste! There's a program which you may or may not have heard of. Uh, if you're at all geeky, I'm sure you've heard of it. It's called SETI, which stands for the Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence. Um, and I was watching a presentation by Stephen Wolfram, the, the, the crazy, brilliant, uh, somewhat socially awkward <laughs> Stephen Wolfram of Wolfram Alpha, um, and the book that kind of inspired a lot of my own um, exploration, investigation, understanding of reality and categorization and using Pascal's Triangle. Um, he uses a thing called cellular automata, uh, which the idea is to have very simple rules generate very complex things. Uh, and they really are incredibly simple rules. If you, if you do a search for cellular automata, um, it's also the game of life, the, um, the uh, computer program that was, I think it was invented in the 70s um, or thereabouts, that, that showed that very simple rules can generate very complex things. And of course, my own understanding of the universe is that Pascal's triangle version. Um, it's not exactly, I, I always use Pascal's triangle to describe it, but it, Pascal's triangle is somewhat limited in what it did, but what it describes is much more complicated. And the, um, so Pascal's triangle is kind of the starting point, the, the mainstream starting point for the idea of all these possible paths, all these possible combinations of, um, binary things that can generate literally every possible combination that can exist um, given to opposing functions of something. Uh, so, you know, on or off, you know, one or zero. Uh, but binary can, in theory, describe everything that exists that we can be aware of because we can assign um, a zero or one to every possible thing that exists that does something. Anyway, um, so I was watching this video and he was talking about um, the fact that the end at the end of the book Contact by Carl Sagan, um, which was shockingly, but not shockingly, not included in the movie. And I always thought that was just so bizarre, uh, but I can understand why it wasn't. And, it, and it's also controversial and it's also sort of in a weird way. Um, Sagan, I don't know whether he was intending for it to be controversial mathematically or not, but um, in the book, they, some of this research uh, is showing that uh, some pattern that proved that God existed by there being a pattern in um, the digits of pi. 
um, some, you know, hugely extended version of, you know, calculating the digits of pi. And which is interesting, so that they showed that there was some pattern in it. But Stephen Wolfram said that the pattern was um, a circle, and I didn't remember that from the book. Um, but it, it sort of, um, regardless of, of what it actually was, the idea was that there was there was something very clearly pattern-wise, uh, glaringly in the digits of pi, um, except that mathematically... Um, in theory, as far as we can tell, that the digits of pi are random, and I mean that in the mathematical sense, again, not in the sort of weird, common, biological, sociological sense, but um, pure randomness in the mathematical sense means that all possible patterns um, are included. So if it's an infinite series, you know, any pattern that you can imagine exists in the digits of pi. Um, which you can express in binary, of course, which makes it even easier to find patterns in there than than uh, base 10, um, because binary breaks stuff down, and they're, they're more, they're literally more numbers, you know, if you're expressing the number 10 in binary, you know, it's not just a one and a zero, it's a bunch of ones and zeros. Um, but anyway, so the, he pointed this out, um, that Stephen Wolfram pointed this out, and his speech uh, was to an audience at SETI, the Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence Organization, um, because, as if you've seen either the movie or read the book of Contact, you understand that um, as we search for, literally searching for intelligent life out there in the universe, um, using radio signals and whatever other kinds of signals we can find, but it's, it's primarily they've been searching for radio signals, um, thinking that, you know, if we found something that looked very, you know, unusual, looked very intentional, purposeful in a complex way, that we would know that, the, that you know, there's other intelligent life out there. Except that as Stephen Wolfram was pointing out, um, and as we have slightly discovered, um, I think recently, you know, there have been some interesting news items that said, strange thing discovered through astronomical telescopes. You know, we found this this thing that didn't, didn't fit into any of our preconceived notions about what, you know, very generic kinds of celestial objects would do. Uh, we didn't. We didn't expect this. And and then a little while later, it find, we find out that, you know, it, it's some fairly predictable, normal thing that they just weren't realizing was predictable and normal. Um, I don't know if all of the things that they've been reporting that were weird turned out to be, you know, fairly easily explained, but certainly that has happened in the past. And the same thing can be true for, you know, any random signal and I do mean random in the mathematical sense, um, that happens could be perceived, depending on how we look at it, as being something very intentional, very specific, very complex. Um, so if you roll a die, uh, or flip a coin, let's say, flip a coin, um, you know, a thousand times, 
you're going to get, you know, a pattern. It's not, you know, a pattern in the sense that there, there is a specific um, order to those you know, heads, tails, zeros and ones, whatever you want to call them. And um, using that set of numbers, that binary set of numbers, you could input that into um, some kind of com computer program or something and generate something that you could tweak the way you output the pattern. You could, um, you know, so if you're, if you're coloring in black and white squares, for example, you know, heads for black and tails for white squares, you could decide how to arrange those squares so that they looked like something that was easily recognizable as something complex and, and interesting, you know, as opposed to just, you know, black and white squares, just kind of in a row or whatever. You could, you could go out of your way if you were really clever. You know, let's, let's, let's organize this in a smaller sense um, instead of, you know, a thousand coin flips or a hundred coin flips. Let's do, you know, ten coin flips. And so then if you imagine ten black or white squares, um, a pattern of ten or black or white squares, you could sit there and, you know, given enough time, you could probably make an interesting pattern with those that was reasonably reasonable looking um, as a way to generate it. So you could say, make it a, um, you know, a nine by nine grid with an extra one just sort of sticking off to the side that you could call, quote, noise. Um, and you could make a nine by nine grid that had a pattern in it using whatever those digits were, um, you know, whatever the the pattern that you came when you flipped the coin, the pat that pattern that came up when you flipped the coin could be rearranged if you worked at it, you know, into something that was interesting, you know, a, a line that goes through the middle of a nine by nine square or an X or something like that. Um, and so a big part of what looks interesting, intelligent, purposeful, whatever you want to call it, um, is the interpretation of that. There was recently a, uh, I don't know where it was, I think it was in a TED Talk that I saw, um, that for, you know, hundreds of years, there were these marks on a stone somewhere. Uh, I don't even remember where it was. It was I think it was in Europe, but it could have been anywhere. Um, there were these marks that looked like, you know, Druidic language or something. I don't remember exactly what it was, but it, it looked like some, you know, s right around the, the historic, not quite prehistoric, but you know, right at the beginning of historic period uh, where they obviously were writing. And um, so it looked like it was some some poem or something like that. Somebody had tried to translate it and, uh, and, you know, for hundreds of years, they thought, you know, they were trying to figure out what it said. And someone recently discovered, and I'm not sure how they, if they could even say this with total certainty, but someone had, had basically, uh, shown that they were just random scratches on a rock. They, they weren't made by a human. They were just there, you know, they're just scratched on a rock, you know, by another rock. 
<laughs> that was moving, wiggling in the wind or something like that. And we see this all the time, obviously. You know, there there's so many things out there that seem so mysterious, and yet they end up being, you know, just fairly simple, you know, natural occurrences that, that weren't they weren't made by humans, they weren't even made by, you know, another intellectual being like a cat or a dog or anything that was doing anything intentional. It was just, you know, not accidental, but it was, you know, the wind blowing in a certain way or a couple of things combining in a certain way that just happened to output something that looked specifically interesting and purposeful. So we really have to look at this whole idea of what is interesting, purposeful, intelligent, you know, how we want to define this. And uh, as Stephen Wolfram said that there's a, there's, he was saying, how do you, if you take, what did he say? He called it a box of souls. Um, so he had, which is, in my mind, I was envisioning the planet Earth because he was talking to SETI. So, you know, it, it seemed like reasonable to think that, you know, if we were looking for us, you know, what would we look for in a planet? What would we look for coming out of this planet that would make it seem like it had other individuals like us um, with a similar level of intelligence or higher level of intelligence and complexity to its structure compared to, say, Mars, which, you know, is very simple. Um, and you know, while interesting, it's definitely not as interesting as the planet Earth. So his box of souls, Stephen Wolfram's box of souls, he was comparing to a rock. So he, said, he said, okay, so here's a, here's a box of souls, and right next to it is a, is a rock. And, you know, is there any way we can test to see if there's a real difference? You know, how do we know which one is the one that has, quote, intelligence or purpose to it? And... Um, because he was pointing out, and I'm also pointing out, and we, we are aware of this fact that how we perceive something, um, if we get a bit of code of information, a pattern that we see out there, um, whether it's matter or energy or whatever, there's some kind of pattern that we see out there, how can we, how can we know whether or not it's our own interpretation that is inputting the intelligence into it or not? Um, there's a, there was a study, I guess, with little kids and, and robots that, uh, if, if the researchers in this study tried to harm the robot, the children would get upset, you know, it seems totally reasonable that, you know, <laughs> and even adults probably would do this, but they specifically studied kids that, you know, that the kids actually identify with the robot as an individual with its own desires of not being harmed. And if the researcher tried to harm it in the sense that these kids understood that, you know, the kids would get upset and say, no, don't, don't hurt the robot. And that makes complete sense. Um, even if, even if we're not talking about intelligence, um, you know, if somebody tries to harm a bicycle, if somebody tries to saw a bicycle, you know, we, we cringe a little bit. We're like, no, that was a very nice bicycle. It was a functional thing that was useful and we don't want it to be harmed. And so, so this isn't so much a, as somebody, some might say, an anthropomorphism. It's more of a, a complex individual 
object, you know, an object that, that actually serves a purpose and, and does a function and has an ability to do something that's unusual or interesting. We, we don't want that thing to be harmed, at least to some extent. So that, that's natural. But the idea of putting uh, the anthropomorphism, or it, it's a terrible word, and, and not just to say, but it's a terrible word in the idea that only humans have the capacity to feel things and think and be intellectual. You know, of course, that's just ridiculous. You know, we're, that's, <laughs> that's, uh, that's sort of the anthropocentric way of thinking, I would call it, which is a negative way of thinking. We're far more like so many other individual things than we are different from them. Um, but regardless, we can still affect how we think about something else based on our own preconceived notions, based on our own um, interpretations of things, which are unrealistic and ultimately possibly unhelpful um, or possibly more helpful than, you know, reality <laughs> would, would otherwise offer us um, in the sense of, like, we don't actually want to harm the robot and even if part of that is because we're emotionally attached to the robot and we don't we, we feel like the robot would be emotionally harmed if it was harmed, you know, when it turns out it would not be. But that offers off us a little bit more of a a, a respect for, um, you know, the the uh, the difficulty of creating a new robot or of fixing it, you know, so. So even if we do attach emotions to something that has no emotions in the sense that we humans do, that, you know, that might be okay too. Um, but it's important to point out that our interpretations of things and our preconceived notions and our first person perspective of reality affects everything that we experience. Um, so that all of science is affected by subjective reality of our own internal ideologies. So that means that when we are looking to test for um, some kind of superior intelligence out there in the universe, you know, we're looking for a planet that's, you know, maybe a little bit more like ours as opposed to Mars. Um, we're looking for living biological or, or, artificial intelligence or whatever we're looking for that out there in the universe something that's a little more like us humans out there or beyond or whatever uh, but something that's it's more interesting than just rocks and and fire and plasma and that sort of simple things that we already know that's out there um, that a lot of that testing is subjective it is going to be um not entirely realistic, not entirely objective, because we're going to put our own perspectives on it. We're going to be looking at it through human-colored glasses, or at least Earth-colored glasses, biological-colored glasses, if you will. Um, and the same thing is true. This, this goes back to artificial intelligence as well, of course, uh, with the Turing test, um, that we already know that depending on our our intentions of discovering whether something is intelligent or not, 
whether an artificial intelligence, a bot or whatever, a chat bot or whatever we have is, whether how we determine whether that's intelligent is um, very clearly based on our own perceptions and our subjective ideas of, of what intelligence is. And so that's important to always remember. But I think it's interesting that, um, um, that Turing actually came up with something that I think is still very relevant um, in testing for intelligence that is like human intelligence, which is not as useful as most people seem to think it is as a test. Um, I think the far more useful test is usefulness, literally. Um, we don't necessarily need to know whether something is, quote, as intelligent as a human being or you know, similarly intelligent to a human being. What we want to know is, is it useful to us uh, for solving problems that are as complex as human beings tend to think of problems? So usefulness is far more uh, important, as far as I understand, as far as I can tell, than the word intelligence or consciousness or awareness or any of those other things. We don't necessarily care. It's, you know, it's not that it doesn't matter at all. It's just that um, it matters very little compared to whether or not we can use this thing uh, to help us do something. So I'm going to propose a, a version of the Turing machine, um, I mean, of the Turing test, because uh, Alan Turing's own Turing test, original one, was uh, it was a communication test to see whether something could interact with a human in a way that the human wouldn't know whether it was interacting with another human or an artificial intelligence or some other kind of intelligence. And I'm going to sort of propose a similar idea because it's not just about communication and it's not just about saying whether or not it's human-like, but I'm going to say a test for, quote, intelligence or purposefulness or whatever we want to term we want to use that... Uh, that sort of answers the question of whether or not this thing is similar enough to a human being um, in its ability to solve problems and ask questions and create things and explore things in any way. That what we would, we would want to know, the way to test it, is to see whether it could incorporate our goals... Um, in whatever version we want of what our goals are, you know, on a, a large scale or a small scale or whatever it is. Um, if, if this thing that we're testing, this, this black box that we don't know what's inside it, um, if it can incorporate our goals in some way that is not totally predictable and that improves upon our own ability to solve our problems, to get to that goal. So if I say I want to get from point A to point B and, you know, physically in, you know, meat space, <laughs> you know, uh, I want to get across the room. And if I can interact with this individual thing in some way that it can offer me something new um, or something at least as good as... Um, but ideally better than my own solution for getting across the room. 
then it has some capacity for second-person perspective, which is a part of, you know, the ability to have intellectual, useful, thoughtful interactions with the world. You know, if you only have your own perspective. My computer right now only has its own perspective. It can only do the things that it knows how to do. It doesn't really care what I'm going to do. Um, it's going to do the things that it knows how to do. And that's it. It's not interested in, in like exploring anything on its own to see, you know, if it can help me in a different way. It's not interested in changing itself um, to, quote, be better, to be more useful um, to a larger world. So that's what I'm going to suggest, that that's at least the, the beginning stages of testing for complex behavior, um, more complex than a totally pre-programmed thing, that it can offer a new way of thinking about something that helps us. And, it, and it'll have to do that in a way that um, isn't just completely pre-programmed into it, obviously. So um, that's not something that's totally easily tested for, obviously, because we wouldn't necessarily know how something was programmed, um, which is why the, the original chatbot, the old, old chatbot, which was Eliza, um, which you've... If you've never experienced Eliza, um, go test it. Go look on the internet. Type in uh, Eliza, E-L-I-Z-A, uh, chatbot. It's, it was a psychoanalytic chatbot invented way, way, way back when, near the beginning of computers, um, or certainly of computers that could interact in uh, pre-programmed ways with humans in writing English language or whatever language. Um, but so it would need to be, we wouldn't necessarily know what something was pre-programmed to do. Um, so that makes obviously this a, a complex test uh, to, to totally figure out, which is why the Turing test itself isn't totally easy because, you know, things can pre be pre-programmed with so many different ways of, of interacting. And humans are so complex that, you know, we can we can dismiss, again, this is, you know, our own perspective, our own subjective ideas about how we're testing something and what we're looking for is going to affect how we decide what it actually is. So that our own, uh, our own understanding of human complexity can say, oh yeah, you know, I, I can imagine a human saying that, even if we've never actually seen a human say that, and even if it's not a human saying that, but you know, if you string a, a bunch of words together and it makes a sentence, um, you know, we're already thinking, hey, that sounds very human. Um, you know, no, other, no other species on the planet is likely to come up with that um, unless we teach it to them. But that's the same thing is true for an artificial intelligence uh, or a, a fake artificial intelligence. You know, we can teach it to, to do things that look like a human would do or look like some other complex intellectual being would do. Uh, so that's why I'm coming up with this, this extra little bit about having it solve a problem of ours, uh, incorporating a goal of ours with its own goals, with its own abilities, but doing so in a way that, you know, 
we're pretty sure it wasn't programmed to do. Okay, I rambled on about that probably far longer than it needed to be. Um, but I thought it was interesting. And uh, since there's so many people out there asking these questions about, you know, what is intelligence? What is consciousness? Um, how do we test for it? How are we going to know whether we found it in something or not? You know, this is something to think about that, you know, it may not be the best question at all um, because it doesn't really matter ultimately, you know, whether or not my cat is uh, a, a incredibly well-programmed artificial intelligence or is an actual biological bag of goop that uh, is alive. Um, you know, the important thing was, you know, whether or not I interacted with the cat in a way that was, you know, enjoyable to me. And um, while that sort of dismisses life quite a bit, it also doesn't. It also respects the fact that there are things that are not life um, that that are valuable to us, that we really care about. And, you know, so I think that's that's good to think about, too, whether or not this this other individual thing in the black box that you don't know what it is, is useful to us. Um, and everything is, of course, useful in some way. But the more useful it is to us, the more we're going to care about it. And that is unrelated to whether or not it is a biological thing or a totally synthetic thing. Um, so, yeah. Okay, I'll leave you with that. And if you have any questions, please do get in touch with me. Uh, my email is thewiseturtle at gmail.com. And you can reach me on Reddit. My username is Turl, T-U-R-I-L. So if you go to reddit.com slash user slash Turl, T-U-R-I-L, you can find everything that I've written. And you can contact me there if you're registered in Reddit, which is very easy and free and um, fun. And you can also, of course, find my blog at turl.org. So it's www.turil.org, and that'll forward you to wherever my blog is. Okay, I hope you have a wonderful life and you appreciate whatever interesting artificial or biological things that you encounter today. Namaste!